Well, we're in Isaiah chapter 3 tonight, making our way through the book of Isaiah. You know that Isaiah, a very powerful prophet, was a prophet for 40 years. He had five children and declared the thunderous judgment of God as well as the beautiful grace and restoration of God as well. It's, I think there's 66 chapters in Isaiah, split about down the middle between the grace of God and the judgment of God, which is not untypical. Because every time we talk about the judgment of God, there's also grace right next to it. And every time we talk about the grace of God, there's judgment possibly right next to it. And that's the book of Isaiah. You know, when God's judgment finally falls, you can, you can mark this for sure. We see it in the book of Isaiah. When God's judgment or his patience finally runs out, it comes thoroughly and swiftly. There is an end to... There's not an end to his grace, but there's an end to his ability to hold back his wrath. And when it comes, it comes thoroughly and swiftly. There's not a whole lot of announcement prior. We even know that when Christ comes back and the earth melts with fervent heat, the wicked will stand before the white throne judgment of God, and we will stand before the seat of reward before the Lord called the Bema Seat of Christ. For the believer, it's not a seat of judgment. It's a seat of reward. Did you know that? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 Corinthians chapter 3, somewhere in there. You will find it. For the believer, it's a seat of reward, not judgment. Please understand that. But for those who refuse Christ and turn their back on his calling, their severe judgment. Now, through the centuries, we'll see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, it's mentioned in the New as well, God's longing for his chosen people, the Jews, his longing for them. By the way, we'll keep Israel in our prayers and in our mind and in our heart as we go on day by day. Those were his chosen people. And uh, as you know, he carried them out of Egypt in bondage as his bride, a husband would carry his bride across the threshold. He carried his bride through the wilderness except his bride was pretty rebellious, I must say. Over and over and over again, they turned their heart back to idols. It wasn't very long. I think they were out of Egypt for about a month when they started building a golden calf, maybe two months. So they crossed the Red Sea. I mean, the Egyptians were after them. 
just watch Cecil B. DeMille's movie of the Ten Commandments and you'll see for yourself. And he closed in those waters, those mighty waves, over all the Egyptians, the mighty Egyptians and their mighty, relentless horses. As God's people just put their last sandal on dry, drown, dry ground on the other side, then the waves cr crushed in. He, he loved his bride. He loves his bride. Today we refer to his bride as the church. He loves his bride. And he is ever so patient. I mean, we're going to see him flip back and forth. In the book of Isaiah, he's saying, I have wanted you, I have chosen you, I have loved you, I have helped you, I have delivered you. I have protected you, and yet, you again and again and again have turned your back on me. And so now, judgment is going to fall. But you can sense that as a father is torn to discipline his children, so our Father in heaven, it's like there was righteous anger, yet agony at the same time. Look at chapter 1 real quick. We're going to be in chapter 3, but look at chapter 1, where he's talking to his people about their wickedness, and yet, in chapter 1, and yet he comes to verse 18, right after he tells them that they're going to be judged for their insistence on rebellion and idolatry. He tells them, out of one side of their mouth, you're going to be judged, and out of the other side of his mouth, look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And it's kind of like wherever you go, God's people, wherever you go, the message is your behavior, your faith, or rebellion will determine your destiny. Isn't that pretty clear? If you are faithful, you will eat of the good of the land. But if you are rebellious, you will feel the edge of the sword. It's kind of that simple. And he goes back and forth, but it's not... He loves his people. He has a preference. He has a preference that they would just bow their lives to him and let him take care of them. And by the way, you know, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, were not just rules to depress us and uh, debilitate us. They're all commandments to bless us and protect us should we decide to obey them. And so this is the message of Isaiah as well. And so he is talking now to a stiff-necked people whose culture had become completely collapsed because 
of their lack of morality. Actually, the title of the message is The Collapse of a Culture. And I got to say it now, and I won't be too specific, but as I'm reading the collapse of their culture, sometimes the word America comes through my mind. As we read through this, look at the similarities, please. Have at it. And so we begin, Isaiah begins in chapter 3. This is the judgment passage. You know, we split this up as pastors, and, you know, I'm going, okay, well, I, I love Isaiah. And, you know, my first time to teach is the judgment passage. But that's okay, because I focus on his grace as well, more so even. Let's read verse 1. For behold, Isaiah says, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah. And I'll stop right there. We begin in verse 1, seeing who is control, who's in total, complete, sovereign control of what is going to happen here. We read the Lord several times that the Lord is going to take away from Jerusalem. Look at um, verse 13. The Lord has taken place to contend. He stands to judge his people. Verse 16. The Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away all of these things that we'll explain later. The Lord is in complete, total control of his people, of the universe, of our country, and of the world. There is no doubt he is sovereign, master over all, creator of all, and the one that determines all for mankind. So he starts off right away talking about judgment, Know this, it is from the Lord that this judgment is going to come. He decides. He's the one who's also long-suffering and will just be amazingly patient. But he's also the one that will pull the sword out of the sheath of his word when the time is right. And so as we look at this judgment, it's very interesting. We know it comes from the Lord ultimately. But, but what does it look like? What does it look like? In these passages, chapter 2, verse 7, what we see that God's judgment is like, because I think his judgment takes on various forms, but in this particular case, his judgment takes on the form of cultural disintegration. The decay and the erosion of his people and their lives, of his protection over them, their safety, their food, their clothing, the roof over their head. Part of God's judgment in these passages is that he steps back and he removes his hand of blessing over their life. So let's look at one, and we'll go to two. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away. 
He's taking away from Jerusalem, the city of the great king, and from Judah, which is the southern uh, part of Israel, so to speak, God's country. He is going to take away from them support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. So the Lord is basically saying, I'm finally going to give you what you want, your own way. I'm going to allow you to keep going in the direction you're going. I'm not going to force you to love me. I'm not going to force you to serve me. You, my friends, are on your own. And so we're reading about a people whose very life depended on water. Now, they're one of the the few places in the world that depends. Their greatest commodity in the land of Israel, if you've ever been there or anywhere else in the Middle East, is water. There's nothing more invaluable in desert terrain than water. Their lives depend on it. They need it. They can't go more than three days without it. And so what does God do? He says, because of your insolence and because of your hard heart, I'm cutting off your supply of water. I'm taking it away. And then he says, and also your support of bread or food that the psalmist says sustains our heart, the carbs that give us strength and a lot of other problems. I'm taking away the wheat and the bread, the very minerals and vitamins that you need to live. You're not only going to be emaciated and thirsty because there's no water, I'm taking away your food. There's going to be a famine in the land. I'm sending it as a part of my judgment because you refused. You know, it's interesting, and it is true. I mean, this is pretty severe. But one of the ways that God can deal with us when we have decided maybe to get ahead of them or strike off on our own, a lot less serious than what we're reading here, is that he kind of steps back and, you know, things kind of stop. And a classic passage is John 21, after uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and we read that Peter still had not made it right with the Lord. You know, he denied him three times, of course, that he even knew him, swore that he even knew him. And then the resurrection happened, and of course, he was in the upper room a couple of times. There's not a whole lot of discourse between him and Jesus, if any, at that time. And so we know that Peter's feeling pretty broken and ashamed about his threefold denial, the thing that he said he would never do. And with hours, he did it. And then we find him about six weeks after the resurrection on the shores of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee, with six friends, six other disciples. There were seven of them at that time. Great passage, one of the best in the New Testament, John 21, my personal favorite. And uh, Peter looks to his friends and he says, um, 
Well, these are all fishermen, you know. Would you like to go out to fish? And what he's actually saying is, we're discouraged, we're frustrated. Peter's not yet restored with the Lord. He feels like a failure and shame the rest of his life because of what he did to Jesus. And so he goes back to the only thing he knew, fishing. Yet we read when the Lord Jesus first met them, he told them to what their nets? Leave their nets so that they're going to become fishers of men. Yet in their discouragement and impatience, they decide to take matters into their own hands and do what they knew best. And so he said to his friends, will you come with me back to our fishing occupation before we met the Lord? An expanded version of that verse. And you know what the next verse is? They said, we will go with you. And you know what the next verse is? It says, but that night they caught nothing. They caught nothing. These men were professional fishermen. They knew where to fish. They knew where the caverns below the water were. They knew how large the fish were. They knew where they schooled together. They were professionals. But that night, they caught nothing. Just a tiny picture of when we decide on an applicable level in our own way to take matters into our own hands because we're tired of waiting, that that night we catch nothing as well. And you start to think, oh boy, Lord Jesus, let me just come right back under your care and trust you again. His judgment is seen in the disintegration of the nation in the culture of Israel, he stepped back his provision from water, bread, and also, look at these next verses. Verse 2, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, in the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. What he's saying is, whether they're legitimate or illegitimate professionals and leaders, sounds like there's a mixture of them, these are leaders and skilled men that provided security national security, and peace of mind for God's people. Legitimate or otherwise. Fortune tellers, ridiculous. But in their day, it provided them a sense of peace that they could know the mind of God through these skilled people, through the spiritual elders that weren't doing very well in those days. I'm not only taking your sustenance for life, but I'm taking away your security and your safety. I am removing the law from the care they offer. Does that sound familiar in our culture? Removing the protection and the law from your safety. 
I'm not going to say anything else. Thank you very much. So everything that they said brought them peace of mind and safety and care and provision. The Lord is stripping away as a part of his judgment and a part of his grace. Because when the judgment falls, people have a tendency to repent and come back to the Lord. Actually, judgment is an act of love and grace. Of course, I've always loved what Pastor Rick has taught when he teaches about the judgment of God because so many people have said to him through the years, if a loving God would cast anyone into hell or judge anybody, how can that be a loving God? And he would say it's a very much a loving God. If someone broke into your home and massacred your family and stood before a judge and the judge let them go, is that a loving judge? I don't think so. It's not a just judge at all. It's a farce, a wicked judge. So he steps back. And it's a slow disintegration of God's people. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, you have gone to science class. I remember when I was in high school, one of the very few classes I went to, it was the science class. I did graduate, but that was my favorite and probably only class I went to, the science class. It's amazing, just a little sidebar, the biology teacher that I had was a Christian. I had no idea. I, I mean, I, I never even thought about coming to Christ, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old. And later on, after I met Christ, I ran into my biology teacher, and he told me, he says, I used to see you coming to class, and I knew you were up to no good the way you looked. He goes, I want to tell you, when you were 16, I was praying for you to come to Christ. Seven years later, I did. Awesome. But I'll never forget the frog in the bucket. Remember the frog in the bucket? Burned a horrible memory in my mind. Well, they get a bucket of cold water, and they put a little frog in it. And he'd just be swimming around, swimming around. You guys know this. And uh, he would take a, a Bunsen burner and turn it on the very lowest heat and put it under the bucket. And that frog, you know, he just looks so content and didn't even know the water was heating up. Things were starting to disintegrate for this frog. It was soon that he was going to be no more. He didn't even sense the change in the warmth enough to jump out of the bucket, which he could have done so easily. And before the frog could even know what was happening to him, he was dead. That's what's happening to this culture. It's slow, gradual, consistent disorientation, disintegration of their culture, and there wasn't going to be anything left, as you'll see. I like the way Chuck Swindoll pens it in one of his older devotionals on a clip called Erosion and Decay. Deterioration is never sudden. No garden suddenly overgrows with thorns. No church suddenly splits 
No building suddenly crumbles. No tree suddenly falls. No marriage suddenly breaks down. No nation suddenly becomes a mediocre power. No person suddenly becomes led astray. Slowly, he goes on, almost imperceptibly certain things are accepted that were once rejected. Things that were once considered hurtful are now secretly tolerated. At the outset, it appears harmless, perhaps even exciting. But the wedge it brings leaves a gap that grows wider as erosion and disintegration join hands with spiritual decay. The gap becomes a canyon. The way which seems right becomes the way of death. And we see that phrase, the way that seems right, all through the Old Testament where we read, but they thought what they were doing was right in the sight of the Lord. He continues, be careful of changing your standard so it corresponds with your desires. Think about that one. Be careful not to change your standard, Christian friend, today so that that it corresponds with your desires. Be careful of becoming inflated with thoughts of your own importance. Be alert to the pitfalls of prosperity and success. Just stay balanced with God's blessings in your life. And so, that was God's judgment. He took away their water and their bread and their comfort and their safety and their protection They were vulnerable to their enemies like never before. And the enemies are the ones that are going to carry them away, as you'll see. That was God's form of executing justice through the enemy that would take them into exile. They were left completely to themselves and vulnerable for all protection. Now, I have a silly illustration, but I thought, well, I might as well share it. Since when have I not shared stupid stuff? My wife and I just went on a camping trip. We were at Lapine. If you want to go camping, go to Lapine, Oregon, right out of Sun River and Bend. And we love to hike. And, you know, she won't let me ever have a gun, a firearm, lest I blow off my own foot. I can never have that. But I have a nice little sharp knife that folds up in a little sheath right here. And one of the trails that she wanted to go on because we'd never been on was called the Cougar Trail. (laughs) I said, well, that sounds inviting, Jenny. I can't wait to go on that trail. But I said, have no fear. The Cougar Slayer is here. So (laughs) every time, really, every time we go on a hike, I go, I'm bringing my Cougar Slayer. You know, it's a dime of it. I felt pretty vulnerable, even with the cougar slayer. These people had no protection. And it was a part of God's way of saying, you've crossed the line. I'm your provider. I'm your protector. I'm your security. I'm the only one you can depend on. But have it your own way. It reminds me of what one of my senior pastors 
taught us when I was a baby Christian in the Bay Area. I've mentioned this before. He had a sermon title entitled one time, You may get what you want, but you may not want what you get. They insisted on getting what they want. And now they end up with nothing, and the fire of God's going to fall on top of it. But there's still grace. There is a way back. Even now, as we read these words, there was a way back for his people. Let's reason together. So let's continue on. Um, Some more of the judgment was they were going to be compromised with very, very weak leadership. Look at verse 4. And I will make boys their princess. Boys. Little dudes. And infants shall rule over them. What the Lord is saying in a very sarcastic way is, you have no leadership. The leadership you have is rotten anyway, but I'm going to provide leaders that don't even understand what the word means. He's being sarcastic. Now you're going to be ruled by children and infants. Feel protected with that. And then he talks about the total um, anarchy that's going to take place as a part of his judgment. Total anarchy and chaos. He says, verse 5, and the people will oppress one another. That, that word is like violence. It means violence. So neighbors, family members, and neighbors will be violent with each other. Total chaos in the community and in the country. As a part, they turn, they're turning on each other. They start turning on each other. And then he says, They'll also be insolent to the elder. We see that today. Young people that don't have appropriate respect for older people. Insolence. Do you know, now that I'm one of those older people, do you know that in Leviticus, one of the verses in Leviticus is rise in the presence of the aged. So would you please all stand? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Really. And those days when an elder person walked in the room, everybody stood up out of respect. Here, part of God's judgment, insolence, disrespect, old man. That's what he's talking about. They're they're devouring each other. They're biting each other as a part of God's judgment. And the despised to the honorable. Those who are honorable will be despised. They will not be treated with honor or acclaim, even if they deserved it. Verse 6. A man will take a hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you should be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there's neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. In other words, anybody that had any kind of um, attire or clothing that was of means or nice, 
because everyone else is just, there's rags. They're starving. I think a picture, it was in ruins. Their city and the country was in ruins. The Talent Fire, you ever walk, drive through the, right after the Talent Fire and take a look at what that looked like? That's what it looked like. Or the end of World War II. Devastation. Ash. Ruins. Yet, in this scene, someone seemingly has a nice robe or cloak. And everybody just clamor like he's something special. He must have God's blessing on his life. You can be our next leader. And he's saying, get away from me. I don't want to be a leader. I'm not a leader. They're getting desperate now. They're willing to take anything they can to get out of the mess that they created on their own. Look at verse 8 and 9. Why? What caused this judgment? Why does the Lord appear so harsh? Why is he so unrelenting, if you really want to call it, right after he said, I would rather reason with you? Verse 8 says it. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen. Jerusalem was the city, the city of Israel, the great king, and then there were two parts of uh, uh, Israel, northern Israel, and Judah was southern Israel. And so all of God's people, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen. Why? Because of their speech and their deeds against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Defying. That's like shaking your fist in God's face, defying the very Lord of glory that he is. You know, some people that have been non-believers, I've seen one in my time as a pastor that died, died shaking their fist at God before they breathe their last. There's a lot of people that feel that way today that are still living. You mentioned God. I've mentioned this before. I was on a plane one time, and I had a lovely conversation uh, with this lady that was sitting next to me. I was doing some study, and she seemed interested in what I was doing. She said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, well, I'm a pastor. And she went, whoop! Turned it back to me, never looked back again. Yeah, kind of hurt a little bit. But really, there's a lot of people there. Thanksgiving dinner, Mention Jesus, silence in some homes. Insolence, anger, anger at the Lord. Sheer disgust at God's ways and his commands. Disgust. I remember when I was 19, I came to Christ at 23, and I was 19, I was trying to take a couple of courses at a, a, a junior college, you know, kind of like uh, what we have here, first two years of college. And r- right where everybody kind of hung out outside, I used to hear this music, and there was about 10 or 12 Christians with guitars singing songs. You know, I was 19, so, you know, it was, when was that? Uh, Mid-70s. Jesus movement. 
And they're singing and they're praising the Lord. And I just would say to my, look at those Jesus freaks. Look at them. They're idiots. I know I'm a pastor. That's insolence towards God. That's degrading the King and King of Lord of Lords. And his people got to that point. They were so broken and ruined. The very God that carried them on eagle's wings out of Egypt, they now defy him. Look at verse 9. This is interesting. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. The, the scowl, the lack of joy, the hatred, their face condemns them because their face reflects their heart. Their face is a witness against them towards the Lord of glory. They proclaim their sin. This is how proud they were and arrogant they were. They proclaimed their sin like Sodom and Gomorrah. They do not hide it. Now, anytime we read the book of, uh, where is it? It's Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 18, 19, somewhere in there. We read that it was a pretty immoral place, but that wasn't their greatest sin. Their greatest sin was they determined what was right and wrong in terms of how they would live their life. Their greatest sin is they refused to bow their knee before Jehovah God, their maker. That was their greatest sin. They're going to live life their way. And that was the greatest sin. Furthermore, they were proud. They boasted about their sin and their freedom before the Lord. And so what do we read next? Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. You know, when I'm working with individuals that let's say they have a lot of conflict let's say one of them is just very very resentful and uh, is not doing anything anything right to restore the relationship and the other one is kind of pleading look, look I'll do what I need to do and so on and so forth I'll say to the one that is quite hardened and bitter um, you know like do you want to lose this relationship like you can't lose this relationship because you're abusive this relationship could end. Now, I'm not saying that your partner's perfect. Your partner's got something to work on for sure. But I'm telling you, you stay in the frame of mind that you're in. You can, you can jeopardize your family. You could lose your family. And, uh, you know, so eventually there's, they don't budge. And so sometimes I'll say, sir, if it's a guy, I'll say, sir, I just want to let you know this. Where this relationship goes from this point on, 
is entirely up to you. If you want to restore at home, up to you. If you want a wrecked home, up to you. You're the leader of the home. She is wanting to do whatever she can to make the relationship work. And as long as you feel that she is the sole problem in your life and you don't have any issues, pal, it is up to you where this marriage goes. Period. That's exactly what God is telling his people. In verse 9, he says, uh, uh, verse 9, the look on their faces are witnesses against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves, period. And then the Lord gives hope. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. However, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. In other words, you will reap what you sow. And we can do that as believers as well, reap what we sow. But it's just saying, you keep doing this, it's coming back on you. Coming back on you. Verse 12, my people, infants, my people slash infants, he keeps saying, my people, my people, my people. These are not foreigners. These are not children that he doesn't love. He keeps calling them my people. You're doing this to my people. He says, oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Psalms 1, verse 1, talks about them not to get counsel, seat in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who does not seat in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the believer that will not go for counseling to someone who has no regard for the Lord. Now, there are great physicians that are not believers, and there, there are great airline pilots that are not believers, and great brain surgeons that are not believers. And in that case, it doesn't matter to me if they're a believer. I'm going with the best brain surgeon I can find. If I fly to Ethiopia, I just want the best pilot. I don't care if they know the Lord or not. Do you know what I mean? But in some cases, we do not place ourselves under the guidance and the leadership and the counsel of someone who despises the Lord Jesus we love. Never do it. Never. It's dangerous. Verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. Now, you got to know something. This judgment that we're talking about here, the emphasis is against the leadership, not the people. Obviously, the Lord is pulling rank and saying, I am sovereign over all but the elders and the princess and the leadership will be judged severely. They have misled my people and ruined the course of their life. Leadership's critical. The right kind of leadership is critical. Then he says to these leaders, to the wealthy, 
to the aristocrats of their day. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. In other words, these were wealthy, possible leaders, most likely. They, they took over the hard work of the poor farmers in the vineyards who sowed the ground, who planted the crops, who harvested the crops. And they went in and they just took them all for their personal gain. And then they went into the homes of the poor and stole their property. And Isaiah said, oh, woe to you. Look at this verse 15. I love this one. What do you mean, God says, to these aristocrat, wealthy, carnal, godless people? What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts? Oh my gosh. I am the Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth, all of heaven's host, all of the world. All of my creation belongs to me, and you, you have taken the poor and their hard work, and you have crushed them into the very fields that they sowed. How dare you treat my people like that? Now, that's kind of the way I feel about my family. You know, and you moms and dads, come on. Someone treats our family in an ill way, like what you do to them, you do to me. When the Apostle Paul was on his way to persecute and imprison God's people, he was met on the road to Damascus. That road is still there. And uh, God knocked him down. And you know what he said. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You touch God's people, you touch him. And that's why I love what the Lord's saying. What do you mean by crushing my people and taking what belongs to them? The Lord is intense. His wrath is ready to roll. Then listen to these very interesting passages. Now, I want to just, this is verse 16. Let me just read this. The Lord said, because of the daughters of Zion, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, which means proud. So what we're going to read sounds like he's referring to the aristocratic women of the generation. We talked about the male leadership that's going down. Now we're talking about the aristocratic women. But in looking at the commentaries, probably the best I read was he's talking more about the spirit of their age, not just women. It's that the daughters of Zion and what they do is a representation of their culture. Okay, so we're not singling out women here. Just want to say that. It just makes a lot more sense. Okay, listen to this. He's taking things away, right? God is diminishing what they have. 
and what they depend on. Listen to this. I mean, this is actually interesting. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, pride, prideful, there was a prideful spirit in those days, and walk with outstretched necks, I don't quite know what that means, but it sounds like it belongs there, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go. What does that mean? Mincing along as they go? Who knows? Tinkling with their feet. Maybe anklets, something like that. We'll talk about that later on. Therefore, now once again, he's talking about a cultural norm. Okay? Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. In other words, the the mantra of that day or the look of that day or the opulence and wealth of that day suggested beauty and, what did Rick used to say? Airbrushing? Airbrushing, that's right. Hair is beautiful and airbrushed and jewelry everywhere. It's the wealthy. It's what we've accomplished on our own. It is our self-sustained wisdom that brought our wealth to us. Yet what the Lord's going to do is he's going to take off that beautiful hair and in its place put a scab right in the middle of the culture's head. Very, very colorful. Look at verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of anklets, the headbands, and the crescents. What's a crescent, ladies? You know, what's a crescent? Is it kind of well? Crescent means kind of like a half moon. Is it a maybe it's a piece of jewelry that a necklace, pendant, necklace, something like that? Okay, and the pendants. He's going to take away the bracelets and the scarves the headdresses, the armlets, the sassage, the perfume boxes. What's an amulet? Doesn't sound very attractive, whatever it is. It's going to take away the amulets. The signet rings, that means that who they belong to. The signet rings, it means royalty too. People of royalty wear signet rings. And the nose rings, which are back in style now, as we all know. The festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Turbans and the veils. 21 items that all represented wealth and arrogance. Wealth, beauty, self-dependency, and arrogance. God's taken it all away. All of it. And they're just going to be left with a scab on their head. Something like that. Verse 24. This is a contrast phrase. 
Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. No more perfume. Why? Because your behavior as a culture and my rebellious people has been limited to rottenness. And instead of a nice belt, you're just going to have a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Now, what is branding? What do you think? The tattoo? The tattoo thing? Oh, hot iron burning. So, yeah, okay. So, no offense to those who have tattoos. I have a tattoo. Matter of fact, I have a tattoo. I'm gonna, can, I, can I confess something to you? I have a tattoo. Okay, let's go on. No. <laughs> when I was 17, I was sent away for six months because of drugs. And I ended up on a ranch in California, and my job was milking cows. Every morning, this skinny city boy, wayward skinny city boy, uh, I'd get up and I'd milk six cows. And then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we'd milk, I'd milk six more cows. It was kind of cool. I'd call and go, and they'd come walking right over that hill every morning, right on time. And uh, there was a guy that was there, and I don't remember the, the situation, but it was later in the afternoon after I milked the cows, and they had a barn with haystacks, and we sat in this haystack, and he had a little bottle, a bottle of Indian ink. That's how they used to make tattoos. A needle in Indian ink. And one of the cool tattoos of that day was a cross with little lines on either side, which meant you were really cool and tough. And so he did that. Right here, right up here. Hey, it could have been a lot worse than a cross, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, little tiny cross, and I have, he didn't finish it because they rang the bell for dinner. So, I had two lines that went down. So, it's kind of a half of a cross, kind of. But I just wanted to tell you so, nothing against tattoos, so don't take that personal. Okay. Next phrase. This is how desperate they are. So these women, the women now, back to the ladies, their husbands have been killed in battle. Their husbands have died of disease. Their husbands have died of starvation. They're, they're, the, how, the city's in ruins. Most of the husbands are gone. It's a total famine. They're desperate people. Verse 1, and seven women, chapter 4, shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name and take away our approach. In other words, we don't really need you guys. We just want to use your name. We'll take care of ourselves. We just want your name. That's how desperate they were. Seven women, desperate to have a name and be protected. Those are bad times. Now, in conclusion, 
we don't have time for this, but it always ends up on a positive note. There is a silver lining always above the doom when the Lord is involved. Again now, after all of this despair, there's hope. There's still hope for these people. Look at In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left, those who are now repentant and broken. It'll be a beautiful day for them. And he who was left in Zion, that's Jerusalem, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away all of the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. When all of that has taken place, when all of the, the ashes in the charcoal ruins are gone and survivors are still there and the judgment has been complete and there's been repentance and return to the Lord of glory. Then the Lord will recreate over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. Sounds like the wilderness, you know, with Moses. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. In other words, what he's saying is, there is one that is coming, the Messiah, who's going to set up his kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's going to redeem and restore and renew God's people and their future. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And the lion will sit down with the lamb and will reign with him forever and ever and ever. So after all of this despair and death and rebellion, there's still hope for the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Still hope. And so if you have any friends out there or relatives that are really struggling with it, I'm, I'm just going to say, never write anyone off. Never write anyone off. I have some relatives that you, you just, if I gave you the stats, which I would never do, a couple of them, you would think, the Lord's passing on that one, for sure. No. Never give up hope. Never give up hope. Because over the cloud of judgment, there's always the silver lining of grace. And that's how he ends this dark chapter for all of us. Amen? Thank you for your word, Lord. It's thunderous. It's powerful. It's reality. It's swift. It's definite. Harsh gracious, reasonable, kind, 
Thank you for the imagery we see in the Old Testament where you carried your rebellious people again and again and again on eagle's wings because of your love for your bride. Would you remind us as we leave, as hard maybe as our life may be in this season, that there's always hope. All things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose and to just keep our eye on the horizon where your work is not done. Lord, help us to trust you in it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.